Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hey, everyone. Today on the show, we get to hear a second conversation I was able to have with Sands Hall. You're going to be able to hear it and you're going to be able to see it on YouTube. She talks about what drew her in to Scientology during our first conversation. And during our conversation today, she talks about what drew her out. She recently wrote the book, Reclaiming My Decade Lost in Scientology. And she's a playwright and an author and a musician and a lot of other good things and an educator. And now she is finding the way to be able to educate the public about what she's experienced so they can make a more fully educated and fully informed decision for themselves in the future. Here's Sands Hall. Well, it's a delight to have Sands Hall back on the show. And now I get to see you face to face, which is such a nice treat. Uh, and there was so much more for us to talk about that uh, in some emails back and forth, we went over some ideas. And as I thought I was going to do, I said, yes, 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 and more yes. It's so, so interesting. So I, I am hoping we can cover as much as we can cover today. But I know that uh, there was the issue of authoritarianism and fake news and never defend, always attack and lying and the idea of freedom. So, you know, there, there is so much that happens where people tell their story. And then again, when they zoom out, they see the control mechanisms. They see what happened to them in this group sort of, um, or in any group really, that happened to them quite often, that they were sort of too close to be able to see, or they didn't have the, the words to describe what that technique was, or even to want to believe that a technique was being used on them. That's a big point. Yes. That's a big one. Right. So I, maybe we can start there. What was it like for you just to have that realization, even before we start talking about the techniques, that techniques were being used on you without your knowledge? It's interesting because I'm just remembering um, a sweet little bow that a friend of mine who at the time was, and I believe still is a Scientologist, would use sometimes. And it, it's actually extremely apropos. He'd, he'd go, I can see just fine. What do you mean? And then you go, oh, there seems to be something in the way. And, oh, I think I can see this thing that's in the way. So that was a little bit of what it was like. It's like, you know, I think I've described before this strange mechanism that I felt that, and I, I really want to be clear, I take my own responsibility here, but that the mechanism screwed into place and had these ocular adjustments and you were peering through this kind of helmet that um, altered the well what is the reality whatever but it certainly seemed to make um but at the same time within that helmet i'd be kind of saying to myself and i think this is not at all unusual oh i think i see that something's wrong with this but this helmet is kind of making me say that it that's not wrong and i have to abide by these rules that's where i think the authoritarianism the similarities that stepping away from the church in years and being able to see now what's kind of going on across the world, mm -hmm. but even in our own country, especially in our own country, this sense of there's a way you're supposed to look. 
I mean, to view. To view. And right. I think it's tremendously appealing because mm-hmm. when you have that helmet on, a lot of choice is taken away and you don't have to make, this is the way I believe, this is the way sometimes I dress, this is the thing I'm going to, to say and do and act. And it takes what is sometimes very difficult in our lives. Choice is hard. You're making a choice all day, every day. Right. And then uh, for some people, making choices is very anxiety producing. Um, and maybe because they felt that the choices they had made beforehand were not good ones or not smart ones for their lives and didn't get them where they wanted to go. But it seems like also groups uh, will try to make you feel that left to your own devices, you would make the wrong choices. So you need to give that over to us so we can guide you. And this authoritarianism that you're noticing that's in our country and others, what are some of the similarities you're seeing from your experience? Not only this with how you're supposed to view things, um, but what other forms of authoritarianism are you seeing that's similar? You know, one of the things you said that's so true, when I got out of Scientology, I was so scared that I might make another error that when I was invited, I moved here to Nevada City, I was invited to join like this cool little Celtic organization. I was terrified because it might, there was like ritual. And what might that mean? And, you know, people brought up the Enneagram to me. It was like, ooh, it sounds culty. I mean, I... Everything was so nerve-wracking for me because I was afraid I'd make another wrong decision. That's so true. And it's a it's really something you have to grapple with and say, no, these are my choices and I can't make good choices. I mean, mm-hmm. but I think the three things that have really occurred to me of late um, is the first one that have to do with a recognition I think I have because of Scientology, seeing that these authoritarian techniques are alive in the world. One of the really clear ones is what is labeled fake news. In Scientology, that was called black PR. And basically, it was anything that was negative, no matter if there were facts to back it up, anecdotes or incidents that were supportive of the claim, it did not matter. If it was negative, it was false. And that seems to be something that is very alive. And I just recently read about Hitler using this exact technique, you know, to people fall in line and you get terrified to then complain, right? You just say, okay, I'm going to uh, stick with this, with this line that I need to be speaking. Right. Another one that I think uh, comes straight out of Hubbard's playbook, but also any authoritarian regime's playbook is the idea of never defend, always attack. Like there's just this go after, throw a grenade in some unexpected direction, throwing the person who is trying to sort of point something out completely off. And then the third that's really struck me recently a lot is just lie. Just Mm -hmm. say what you say is true. And then even though it's not true, people will come to believe it's true. And that to me is one of the scariest ones. So those are the three things that of late have just been aware of the growth of them in our country and around the world. Yeah. And so people will ask me, what kind of person runs a group like this or starts a group like this? And what kind of person do we have as the president and whatever your political leanings are still, there are a lot of similarities. uh, And you wonder if it's all part of the same kind of personality disorder or if it's part of narcissism. It's hard to gauge at times without knowing the person individually, but there is this sense that if we can dismiss all the information that's against us, then people 
might not listen to it, uh, but also if we can defame the source of the information, then people are not gonna look at the information. It's like L. Ron Hubbard going against the whole field of psychiatry and psychology, right? Because they had diagnosed him. And so then if you, if you put down the source, then you don't believe the information. So it's the same thing, the source, uh, you know, fake news, whatever the source of that news was, a whole, you know, network, a whole channel, a whole station that's somehow considered all fake. And the idea of black PR, it's a very interesting term, um, that somehow it's public relations as opposed to factual information. So already that gives it the guise of someone's up to something. And as you kind of reframe where you're looking, because if you are then looking outward to see all these people who are up to something, you don't realize that the person who's saying it is really the one who's up to something because they threw like the, the ball that way and you went to go chase it that way. And it's so interesting. There's so much of that. There's so much deflection in the opposite direction so that you don't see what's happening right in front of you. Yes. And another point you bring up, I think that's really excellent is, and I think it's interesting how Hubbard and Scientology would damn certain things, say these are things you should never do, but then you would, you would realize they were doing them. And one of them is that uh, I remember reading that uh, what psychiatry does is grab hold of you for the rest of your life. You can never graduate. You can never get out of it. And they'll charge you lots and lots of money. <laughs> right, you know, right. this complete deflection, tirade, whatever, in the direction of psychiatry when it's exactly what Scientology does. I mean, it's exactly what Scientology does, which is it takes forever. You never really graduate. You never, I mean, there's OT8, but supposedly... There is OT9 through 15, but they can only be released from when a certain number of people get to OT, you know. So it's actually, you can spend your entire life and a gazoodle, doodles of money. Yes. And then you think that these people who are so good at protecting you from all these other people who are up to this would never do it themselves um, because they seem to be so sensitive to other people doing that to you. Why would they do it themselves? And, and then you kind of... Sh- put your blinders on even more or that viewfinder that you had talked about. What I find also interesting is this whole attacking thing. This is where it breaks down. It doesn't seem very church-like, but the never defend, always attack. I mean, I've been at the other end of that, you know, attack and it's shocking. It's actually shocking to the system, which I think is some of its purpose just to have you shut down because they'll really get in your face. And what is that about? Do they explain why that's that's a tactic that needs to be used, never defend, always attack? Well, not my area of expertise, but what I would say is it's about um, don't apologize and don't be wrong. You're always right. So that, that that sense of why would you actually say, oh, you're right, I need to actually amend my behavior rather than it's all your fault anyway, or this is this thing you did. I mean, again, per our previous discussion, it's very much from what I've read about the abusive relationship techniques as well, which is it's always going to be the fault of the other, you know, and there, in that case, sometimes there is a sweetheart section or honeymoon section where you'll take some responsibility. But then in this case, I just don't think that happens. It's always, what have you done to, you know, like the audio last time, what have you done to pull this in? Right. Yeah. To pull this in. And so... I'm wondering also when you were talking about this lying 
there is justification in a lot of groups for lying. You know, with another group that has more of kind of a Bible-based bent, um, they talked about uh, heavenly deceit. It's a little creepy when you really think about what they're doing is they're giving you permission somehow from on high uh, that if you bring someone to the truth, it doesn't matter how you get them there. And um, the ends justify the means. And so you can lie and say whatever you want to get them where you want them to go because you feel like it's the best thing for them. And so just knowing that you're not being handed the truth and that it doesn't actually matter to the people who are telling it to you that it's factual or not is really quite fascinating. So is that something you became aware of while you were in the group or only after that you were being lied to? There was a moment and actually often happened for me that really troubled me. And that is that in Scientology, there's this whole, it's very huge idea of ethics Mm -hmm. and involved in ethics are um, the dynamics of life, which stretch from self into relationships, into your relationship with nature, with your relationship to your your business or your, you know, God and et cetera. And when you were in any kind of doubt, the doubt formula, Hubbard came up with these very precise formulas to get yourself out of these, the condition of doubt or the condition of confusion. One of them was to which of these will benefit the dynamics more of the dynamics than not? So if you're a Scientologist, you're always going to tilt towards the thing that benefits your group that is Scientology. And that seems to me that very same idea that it's like, I can convince myself to push the judge's dog into the swimming pool because I want to make the judge feel miserable because the judge gave a bad, I mean, I'm just, you know, this is a rumor I once heard about, but that idea that anything smash this window, I can um, print this piece of information. It doesn't, it, I can do that because it benefits the larger, my larger group would be the psychologist perspective. And I think that is a very slippery slope. Mm-hmm. And incre- I mean, right. because I actually, one of the things that I enjoyed and appreciate about Scientology and Scientologists is there really was a great sense of ethics. And I, I was yearning, I think, for that, again, that order, that clarity that it provided. And that, but when I began to realize that it made me, even while I was in the church, very often made me very uncomfortable. And then having left, I realized this has been used in inordinate numbers of ways to justify that the ends, the, the means, uh, um, it doesn't matter as long as you get your end. Right. And so I think knowing that this group has a whole ethics department, you know, and you have to go to a committee and there, there is so much protocol around that, but that it's in-house ethics. And then when you find that out, that it doesn't actually apply to kind of the ethical or legal system outside of Scientology. It's to keep Scientology going, keep Scientology working, and to preserve what it has. And um, that seems to be at the source of the the um, the ethical dilemmas that are in the group is that you've compromised the group in some way. Right. Like these ladies who have brought a case against uh, the actor Masterson, who were Scientologists themselves and tried to work within the Scientology ethics and were basically encouraged to examine, well, what had they done to bring this rape onto themselves? And even when they then 
took it to the police, they're in trouble because they're not supposed to move outside the ethical organization that is inside the Church of Scientology. So I think those are, again, it's, I mean, I just, in my book, I sometimes describe the Mobius twist of logic that you can never actually get out of it. it. It's like you never can escape the sense that it always leads you back around to what works best for Scientology. Of course, <laughs> when you look at it from their perspective. Yes. And when you talk about this Masterson case, yes, there, there have been a lot of women who have come forward and a lot of people who complain about anything within more authoritarian groups um, find that that's where it ends. And then um, everything gets quiet. And then they are supposed to just look at themselves. And that doesn't actually feel dissimilar to how the legal system was just fairly recently when women were attacked and they were asked, well, what were you wearing? Uh, and why were you out by yourself? And and so I, I feel like it's this sort of old-fashioned, unenlightened, uh, non-progressive way of looking at things, but also it's disempowering. And so you feel like, well, what was the point of even coming forward? Because it wound up just biting me <laughs> for for doing it. And and I think for some people, they do take that on and they believe that maybe they shouldn't have said anything. And others, that becomes that kind of watershed moment, right? Where they say, okay, this something is really wrong here. I should have a voice. It's even worse than like just being dismissed or ignored you're actually attacked. Again, that attack versus defense thing, you're actually attacked for bringing it up and it's your stuff that's on the line. And for a lot of people, and especially we're talking about women, that's just going to make you clam up. It's like, there's no, I mean, nevertheless, you persisted. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, it's like, mm -hmm. that's a wonderful thing for women. And I'm glad so many more are doing it, but it's very easy. If you know, you're going to be damned, attacked, vilified inside of a particular community that is yours and you may then be you know exercised from that group well it makes you very much less eager or willing to actually stretch your your hand out your neck out in that way you're going to shut up because of the example of look they're being ridiculed they're being dragged over the coals they're not being believed and then why would i speak up so i think to me, that's again one of the scariest things about, and I can I think of examples from other religions as well as I'm talking. Friends of mine who are Jehovah's Witness have, have left the Jehovah's Witnesses and stuff. That there's a very similar, and even the Mormon, you know, the Mormons, that there's there's a way that the the community itself gathers around the community and to speak out against it is very dangerous. It's a sad thing. It is a very sad thing. And I, I wonder also, you were you gave me an example when we were writing back and forth of uh, this, when you say it again and again, somehow it becomes this truth or ingrained idea. And there was a teacher you were talking about. I wonder if you can tell the story. That was interesting. I had, a, as I always do, an annual New Year's Eve party. And this gentleman I rarely see is a teacher at a local um, uh, grade school, high school sort of combo. And he said, you know, he teaches a government class and he feels it he feels it's very important to talk about what's going on in the government at the moment. So he was bringing up, trying to follow the impeachment trial, what was going on in the House of Representatives, and now what was going to happen that Hubbard had, I mean, Hubbard, excuse me, Trump had been impeached in the, um, in the House of Representatives, what was going to happen now that it moved to the Senate. And there were three kids who shouted at him. There's 
Trump was not impeached. There is no impeachment. There is no impeachment. And he was like, well, no, it's here in the news. By the House of Representatives, Trump has been impeached. Now it's moving to the Senate. We have these other methods. We have these other steps that have to happen. But this step has happened. And they were vociferous. And it was very clear that this was what they were hearing in their household. And this is what they had, to some degree, he felt, They'd been told they needed to say, should it come up? And quite violently, they yelled in the class. So he said it was one of the scariest teaching moments he's ever had because you want to deal with the student in front of you. You want to be as kind as possible. You want to also bring them to some sense of, here's the problem of truth. Right. What is truth? Their truth is their truth. And this becomes... And I think it's one of the great ironies of being a liberal, of being a progressive to, you know, that it's like, well, you want to kind of say, well, live and let live. And if that's their perspective, you know, they can have it. And we tend to sort of dodge away from confrontation. And yet that's incredibly dangerous, too. So he was, you know, he was in a school where you're trying to take care of not only the parents, I mean, the kids, but you also got to deal with the parents. I mean, that's even into college. So. It was a really difficult moment, he said, for him. Right. I think having that intensity uh, and the anger and, you know, you get a sense, I think, that there's so much fear mixed in that creates that anger. You know, you, you or the liberal media or fake news or whatever are attacking our savior. Um, and so we have to protect him. At all costs, and and I think people already were prone for to have confirmation bias. So we hear what we want to hear, and we watch the news that sort of supports our our beliefs. I mean, I'm guilty of it too, right? Because it just feels right. Like, yes, this is, thank you. That's what I think. Also, even though sometimes I will watch other channels just to see kind of the the different way that people can spin things because I find that interesting, but, uh, but there's only so much I can watch of it because I start to have sort of an emotional reaction. Right. Okay. So, uh, but I do think that's why it's so, um, powerful when politicians and others and cult leaders have these talking points that they repeat over and over and over again, where then it somehow gets embedded or codified as truth. And then people will just shout it in a way where um, they're not thinking, they're just reacting. And that's probably also what was disturbing to him, that he didn't potentially feel like they were thinking, that they were just purely reacting. And that you couldn't actually, he was unable to present information that is actually factual to them, that that was like you know, there is no impeachment. He was not impeached. There is no impeachment. That was the phrase they kept shouting. There is no impeachment. And uh, he, he was, it was, it was adamant. So that was incredible. And especially at such a young age, I mean, as I say, sixth or seventh grade. So that was uh, very, very scary. It is the, the uh, automatic thinking that I know I, I have to, uh, and I think we all are, are prone to it, but now even more so because there's something in the polarization of how people feel and the 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 anger with which people are uh, and and the impatience with which people are are presenting their ideas makes it so much more tense. It's reminding me um, of uh, a woman, Deborah Lipstadt, who is this uh, expert on Holocaust and um, 
she was on a number of panels where there wouldn't be educators necessarily, but there would be a Holocaust denier. And it became kind of impossible, I think, for her to do education because she just had to spend all this time proving that it actually happened. And and so it's the same thing to me, like the impeachment. It's right it's right there. That was said. That happened. But if you have to spend time just proving that it happened, then you can't go to the next step of teaching about it. The conversation stops there about my truth is better than your truth. My, my opinion is stronger than the facts, that you're stopping there, and then you can't progress further. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to go to something else that you brought up but before that, this doubt formula. If you can go back, because it's, it's so, there's an interplay now with what we're talking about too, this sort of uh, erasing doubt uh, and questioning. So how does that work in Scientology, the doubt formula? How, how does that go into play? There's this little slim volume called Scientology Ethics, and in it, uh, L. Ron Hubbard describes these various conditions that you may find yourselves in. And they're things like um, confusion and liability and uh, doubt. Those are the sort of lower ones. And then you can work your way up to normal and affluence and power. And basically, there it's a lot to do with stats, with statistics. And you begin to realize that you can measure stats in really interesting ways, like the number of times you and your husband have kissed, or the number of resumes you've sent out, or the number of times you've cleaned the house, or the number of postcards you've sent out to support something you're trying to do. Or the, you know, if you can measure stats in really lots of ways, which I think is very ingenious. So you measure. So when you kind of get to a place, confusion seemed to me to be kind of a lower resonance of doubt. You were kind of in a similar place. But doubt, you really had this very interesting thing you had to say, what is it? It's it's, you know, you can, I don't, I'm and speaking about it now without the book in front of me. But I just so I want to make sure that people know that this is actually documented and you can go find the exact phrases. Uh, you could just Google the doubt formula Scientology because they're everything's online now, thank goodness. And um but basically you're doing these various steps. And, you know, the one I did probably eight dozen times was, should I let go or should I stay? <laughs> Scientology. Mm-hmm. And I would come around, of course, again and again to how can you leave the organization that is giving you the tool to examine whether you should leave the organization? I mean, it's wow. absurd. And I can't believe I put myself through it as many times as I did. Right. I mean, because, uh, of course, I knew the answer. And then when you finish looking at that, which one benefits the most dynamics, uh-huh. which one will benefit across the dynamics. Of course, you go to, well, presumably it's, I should, it's going to be Scientology. And then you have to announce that fact to both sides, which meant in my case, sometimes my poor mother would pick up the phone to have me saying, you know, Scientology really is great. Yeah. <sighs> And then I would have to go and actually apply to various people whom I, to whom I might have expressed my doubt and go and have to do something to make up for it. It might have to be walking the streets and trying to get some people to come into the organization. It might be uh, doing some extra work for uh, my husband, my at the time husband, 
uh, who would give me some job to do that would, you know, by, by helping him and his work, I was helping Scientology. So what if you had come to the conclusion that it would have been best for you to leave? Or would that have been impossible given how the formula worked? Well, I could come to that decision, but then I never would. You know, uh-huh, right, I had yeah. I had to leave on very different circumstances than that, which basically it was arriving on a campus and beginning to realize what on earth I had when I got into the Iowa Writers Workshop, what it was to be able to be curious, what mm. it was to be able to have one's interests take one wherever they would go and not be worried about the repercussions of that interest and that research and that delight, which is you might say, well, you know, Scientology actually might not be the best thing for you, Sans, you know, maybe you should leave this organization and that, you know, little by little, it was geographic distance from Los Angeles, but also just beginning to put this other kind of way of thinking to be able to take this weird little cap off. Right. So, and it's interesting you use the word uh, being curious because that also in Scientology ads, they just have the word curious, question mark. And they know that that's going to appeal to people who are curious, who want to know more. And they will be happy to give you the answers as most groups will be. Absolutely. Um, because I think going back to what you're saying about making a decision, um, it it does become very satisfying to make a decision Um, and it doesn't matter at times if it's the right one, it's just one. It's just something that makes us not have that sense of being in limbo anymore, which is anxiety producing and causes us to have to think it through over and over again. And then we can put it away once a decision has been made. Um, but yeah, being able to evaluate if it's the right decision is a whole other, whole other story, you know? No, and that I think is the worst thing because we've all, everybody has this where you make a decision and you're not sure it's right. And then you just keep fretting about it. Right. A very, it was an incredibly important um, friend of mine in the Iowa Writers Workshop whose father was a Lutheran minister. Mm. And she said to me, she was very wise. I, she was, you know, 20 years younger than I, I went back to school quite late, you know, she was quite young, much younger than I was. And she said, but she was so wise. And she said, sometimes my father says that sometimes you can't make a decision because you don't have enough information yet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I found that actually both a devastating thing. How could I not have enough information when I had been doubting for so many years, but it also gave me some peace inside myself, which is that there's one last thing or there's something else has to fall into place before you're going to be certain about this. And eventually it did, you know, but that was a very helpful piece of advice, which is sometimes you don't have the information yet. And who knows what that last piece was, probably some physical sense I finally gave credence to, you know, how my body would twist or my stomach would not or something. But eventually I was able to say, okay, not only am I going, am I certain that it it's right for me to leave. I can no longer be lured back. That was my big fear that somehow I would be reconvinced for many years, for three years. Why I say a decade when I really only spent seven years in Scientology. Those three years were a kind of, I was so worried that something would lure me back. And so before we switch to this last subject that I wanted to make sure to cover, what was it then that was able to keep you out for those? three years, was it like you're saying the geographical distance? Was it certain awarenesses where 
you just couldn't go back to something that did X, you know, what was it? Well, ironically, actually, considering the degree to which this is vital to how Scientology runs itself, and I think it's really one of the most evil things it has going for it, is the policy of disconnection, that you can't be in touch with people. I think probably one of the best things that happened for me is I had to, I chose to disconnect. I could not be spoke. I mean, not only would they not speak to me because I was leaving, but they were, I mean, there were calls made, people tried. um, But I was like, there was an adamancy. And by that point, thank goodness, some anger, you know, for a long time, I just went straight to grief. (laughs) But I think anger, as in the stages of grief, um, that is a very valuable source. You know, it's like something that you can actually pull. And there were several times, like when an ethics officer called me from Celebrity Center Los Angeles, called me on my phone, These were, you know, and I yelled. I said, you get off this phone and don't you ever call me again, ever. And I was, I yelled. And um, it was felt really good to do and just sat there after looking at the phone, you know, with my hands on my hips going, all right, I did that, you know. So it was, it was just a growing, it was a growing certainty. And then absolutely, I was very glad that I wasn't in touch. The friends I did kind of stay in touch with, they kind of were like, you're doing what you're doing. But, and other friends would not, they wouldn't be in touch with me because they couldn't be that Scientology word turned upside down, reasonable. So then switching gears as we kind of finish up, I know this goes fast, but uh, you brought up this very interesting idea about freedom and how the word freedom is used and bandied about. And just like we're talking about reasonable or ethics, freedom is also used in a way that um, is different than it would, people might assume it's it's being defined at. I know, I know that there is a Scientology magazine, Freedom Magazine, because I've been contacted by them for statements and they've posted articles about me and uh, whatever, you know, that my, you know, my license is going to be taken away and that I, I disclose to them all the people I've treated, which I've never, I've never talked to anyone there. I, I know, I know enough not to, not to get back to anyone there. So if anyone sees anything, those are not my statements. <laughs> I would not make a statement. Those were never my clients. I would never disclose that. Blah blah blah. But you know they'll they do what they can, right? But the lying, the the attacking, not defending, all of it, it all comes into play. But this idea of freedom. So talk to me about that. How is that idea used in Scientology? How was it used with you? How did it appeal to you? Well, I think when you first, and even now, again, if you just were to look up on the on on the internet the you know grade chart what it is that you'll you'll get out of certain things freedom is attached to a number of those attainments it's often freedom from like freedom from your reactive mind or freedom from things that have occluded your past lives i don't have the phrasing exactly right so don't quote me but um that uh idea that um What's whole, and it's one of the things that drew me, and I think draws people, is the idea that what Scientology is purportedly working for, and I believe many people in Scientology believe this is what they are working for, is a world mm-hmm. that's free from crime and war and slavery, that they're working for a, a beautiful kind of freedom, which is, is like the freedom, it's, it's from 
confinements, freedom from things that keep us trapped mm -hmm. and keep not only not selfishly ourselves trapped, but what's appealing about Scientology is you're going to help free others. So there's this great altruistic um, call to those of us who want to want to work in the world in that way, that we want our the work we're doing in the world to matter to others, that we're helping the planet in some way with our brief little time on it. Right. So that's incredibly appealing. Right. But then I think what's interesting to me, bottom line, I suppose, is the fact that while a sentence would be said like, what is true for you is true for you, and when you have lost that, you have lost everything, which is a quote from, that is a direct quote from L. Ron Hubbard, that that should mean that you should be able to read and watch and see and talk with anybody and anything and that you that appeals to you. But in fact, what you begin to realize very quite quickly is that if you read certain information, it's going to get you all upset because it's talking about negative aspects of Scientology or that it's going to poke holes in certain things that you're trying to that you think you're trying to accomplish. And so then, of course, because you're one of Hubbard's great words, interbulated, right? There's um, this thing, well, maybe I shouldn't, you shouldn't, maybe you shouldn't read those materials because they upset you. So they can still say you can read those materials, but if they upset you and they, they make you have to go get auditing and ethics handlings because you're so upset about what you read, or if you indeed visit your parents and they, propose they sort of put a another perspective in front of you and you kind of love your parents and think they're kind of nifty people and you kind of want their perspective in fact it makes more sense than Scientology perspective and then you're all interrelated so little by little you learn to put this little helmet in place it's like I'm not going to read I'm not going to talk I'm not going to other than this world I'm in that I uh, that agrees not only agrees with me but puts this nice security helmet around me that I, I can walk within and never be have a problem. So the freedom is a very interesting one because it actually, I think, locks you inside of a very specific path that you need to walk in order to believe what you're being asked to believe. That's my experience. I got interbulated when I read and watched and spoke with people because inevitably I think they're right. Yes. In, interbulation is such an interesting word. Yeah, I want people to be able to look up those words and others. Some are, sound a little more like English than that one, but uh, but it is a very interesting word. Uh, and it is also something, as you're talking about freedom, it's reminding me of something very Orwellian, that there is this sort of 1984 feeling about it of the information control that is for your benefit. Um, to not have the information, to not access the information. And then if you have people having blinders on or being encouraged to have blinders on for their own benefit, then they don't get to be able to make a fully educated decision. They don't have the last piece of information or any really real information. Um, again, and it's seen as somehow a protection. And so just having that be so convoluted and really quite opposite, the 180, is uh, very head spinning, but it is very Orwellian.
also. And I do encourage people to read 1984 if they want to have a sense of how these things operate and the and the effect of them and how they, you know, Scientology didn't invent these ideas. Unfortunately, they they use them and they call them different things. But this idea of freedom also, I wonder, as you left Scientology, were you able then to redefine what that means for you or go back to the definition, what freedom means to you? What is it that, you know, gives you the opportunity to have now or how would you define it now in a different way than within Scientology? Well, of course, um, I have a sense of freedom. As I say, there's a lot of things about getting freedom from. Mm -hmm. So I suppose there's a moment when I was... um, going to the library when I was in Iowa and I was struggling with my conflicting things. And I went to the public library in Iowa city Mm -hmm. and I walked up the stairs and I was looking for the book, L Ron Hubbard, Messiah or Madman. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I was determined to read that was one of the, if that time really one of the only books that had been published, Mm -hmm. um, uh, about that would I thought felt offer me a credible other side I mean I knew there were articles but at that point the internet didn't exist so it wasn't so easy to google like a great LA Times article which I knew there had been so I was upstairs in the in the stacks looking for this book and I thought oh my god there's a person with a rifle behind me who's going to shoot me and It was really interesting because never in Scientology did I feel this kind of danger. And I knew it was a kind of PTSD of that my mind was, the the blinders were coming off and that I knew I wasn't, according to this other system, I shouldn't be in the stacks looking at a book called L. Ron Hubbard, Messiah or Mad Men. I I should be on course studying. Yeah. And that was a very, and then of course, I literally raised my hands, Rachel, and turned around. Like I knew nobody was there, but I literally turned around to look. And that really sums up a certain sort of, I think it was the, it, the thing was cracking, right? Mm-hmm. The cracking mm-hmm. was creating this little, like, you know, weird thing in my brain that I would even think such a thing for even a second. Right. But that was the beginning, I think, of, you know, and another moment I, I I was in such doubt. And yet I one day I went and drove from Iowa City down to Chicago where there was an org. And I walked into the org and I asked to see the ethics officer. And I'm sitting on my hands to keep from racing back out the door. I'm so nervous. What the are you doing, Sands? And he says, well, you need to study you know, this material. And I'm sitting in the course room and I'm so grateful for the standard nature. There's the dictionary, there's a little demo kit. It's all very familiar. Never been in it before, but it's all very familiar. And I realized that's a kind of offered freedom, right? You're in the safe space where nothing's being, everything's the same as it was and you can feel safe. Yeah. You know, I, I studied for about 20 minutes and then I just left. It was like, what are you doing? What are you doing? And I drove home the next day from Chicago back to Iowa City where I was at in grad school. And I was just, I'm, I think that was the moment, Sands, you really are done. And there was a sense, even though that was terrifying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh 
but to go to this idea that you that you had to put your hands up or you felt like you needed to my god it was just ridiculous it it does say so much about something that got under your skin that's correct that there was this physiological impact that you had that suddenly you had this panic because you were doing something wrong according yeah. to scientology according. Mm-hmm. So there was going to be some punishment or you were going to get busted or caught, you know, because there is also this sort of watchful eye in the group, right? And people are telling on each other and you're not really quite safe to do your own thing. And I think that also gets under people's skin. A lot of people will talk about feeling like someone is right around the corner and is going to like pounce on them for having done something or that someone is right behind them. I've heard with a gun or with an ax, uh, or that they're going to go to sleep that night and not wake up, whatever it is, you know, that was the thing that was making them feel scared. Or that a friend that they thought was a true friend who they opened up to was not. And But that does happen. Absolutely happens. That idea specifically doesn't come from nowhere. That actually does happen, you know. Um, I mean, I have clients who are sent to me who are not real clients. You know, I can tell by the questions they're asking me. You know, would you hold someone against their will? Would you, I mean, all these things. And I go, oh, okay. Time to go. And so people aren't making that up when it comes to groups like this. Um, But it's very hard to know if you can trust yourself, if you can trust your environment, if you can trust the people in it. Uh, But also, so going back to this idea too of having gone to the org, the organization, that people, yes, they gravitate towards what's familiar. It's very calming in the moment. And right? It seems like this is safe. We, I came home. And so it took you, you said about 20 minutes before something clicked on or something was growing inside of you. So what, what was happening in those 20 minutes? Well, first of all, the great comfort. And at the same time, you have done this and done this. You have sat in this course room studying these materials. I won't go into the lingo because it's lingo. You have studied these materials and you never, ever completely rid yourself of doubt. Adding to this, and I think it's interesting, groups like this make, they give you a sense that the mundane and the daily, the quotidian, somehow is lacking. That there is a higher state to reach. And that evening, I stayed with friends of friends in Chicago. And the husband was a non-Scientologist. The wife had just come back from the Mecca flag, having done some OT level, some advanced level. And she, she came home, and the house was an old, fabulous, old, ancient Chicago house with those high-paned cupboards in the kitchen, and there were bagels spilled on the counter and open jars of peanut butter and rain boots and, you know, umbrellas dripping water. And um, she's comes in, there's a Scientology word, M-E-S-T, which stands for matter, energy, space, and time. And she was weeping. She said, I want to stay back at flag. Everything's so clean and orderly. And here I'm just surrounded by mess. Look at this mess, you know, and, and she was crying. And her daughter came in 13 years old and said, mom, stop crying. Don't cry. Don't start crying again. Some phrase. And I looked around and I'm in my, at this point, you know, 40s and thinking, am I going to have children of my own? So that's on my mind too. And I look around and it all looks so glorious to me. Um, all the mess of the jam-packed cupboards and the, the refrigerator with all kinds of children's drawings, plus a 
picture of L. Ron Hubbard on it, and just the whole messy, the matter, energy, space, and timiness of this world, the rain boots, you know, peanut butter, children, Chardonnay, whatever it is, right? The beauty of the day-to-day, the living of it. And I think that was a huge part of that trip to Chicago that was so vital in my finally being able to say, you're done. I know I'm done. And that, it was huge. And it was a freedom of a very different kind. You know, it's like, I'm going to have, the car's going to, the car's going to have a problem and there's going to be a mess here and papers are due and, you know, life goes on because life does, but there's joy in that ongoingness. I'm so glad you had that opportunity and to, and to see how you were responding so differently than the way she was to having come back from Clearwater, from Mecca. Um, and, and being so uh, upset about her life being that way, which is interesting because she could have also worked to making it the way she wanted to make it, as opposed to just sort of succumbing to, this is so different and I need to go back there in order to have it. But the randomness, the the life in the moment, you know, the peanut butter and whatever else, yes. For some people, that is so nice when they get out of a group like Scientology, just not setting an alarm, not having to get things in by Thursday at two, not, you know, not having all of these, these moments in time where everything has to be just so. A lot of people have that when they come out of the military. You know, a lot of people have that when they are, their life is so regimented. They have some anxiety around anything being out of place. It takes some time to appreciate the the um kind of the softness i see it as things being a little askew you know that it just feels more real because sometimes that orderliness so comforting anyone who's had a you know i'm in the process of retiring as a professor and there has been a very interesting you know it's like tuesday thursday this is what you're doing you know and it it gives the week monday friday monday monday wednesday this tuesday thursday's that friday's going to be this and the week has this order to it and then it's like, wow, here's this entire day, this entire week, and it's a mine. So there is a tremendous appreciation, too, for order. And there's that, that's part of the thing to work through as well. But yeah, I just remembered the taped up hockey skip stick, you know, the hockey <laughs> stick mom. And that somehow that was just emblematic of the mess, right? God, it was, it was not only a hockey stick, it was taped up. It was going to have to be place, you know, that I remember these details of that so vividly, just thinking, I guess I want the world with the hockey stick. I want the world with the dripping rainbows, the boots. I want, I want the world with the knife stuck in the peanut butter jar. Yes. Yeah, I do too. That's more of my comfort zone, certainly. Uh, okay. Well, I, I, I'm so glad that you were able to reclaim that, uh, that life that that life that has that kind of sense of um i think lack of tension um, but for some people i know it does create tension because things are out of order it depends on your personality but i think it also depends upon um how you find some sort of balance because while you are needing to get things in at a certain time a certain day you can still make a conscious decision to leave the dishes till the morning correct that's exactly right Right, you find that way of finding your equilibrium, but you have the freedom to do so, which I think is so important. Yes. All right. Well, it was wonderful. I could talk to you for a lot longer, I'm sure. 
but thank you for coming on to to get more into some of these subjects that we either didn't have an opportunity to get into at all or we had just touched upon. So I appreciate it very much. And I know people listening appreciate it very much. And I hope that we can talk again. I hope so too, Rachel. It's been absolute delightful. And thank you for what you're putting. I mean, I've just listened to some of your podcasts, but thank you so much for the work you're doing in the world. I think it's just essential. It's essential. Thank you. Thank you. We'll write back at you. Thank you for your book. (laughs) All right. I'll talk to you soon. One more thing before you go. I'm so glad you got to hear another conversation I got to have with Sands Hall, a former Scientologist, among many other things, and a person with great insights and many talents. She talked about the prevalence of fake news within the group and the idea of Black PR. I've always found it to be quite racist for things that are bad or negative or destructive or dangerous to be called Black. But maybe that's just my own sensitivity about those sorts of things and that sort of use of language. But it is absolutely true that Black PR has been around for quite some time, and it is used by organizations that want to discredit the source of any potential criticism of them. There's also a term that you can look up online that exists within Scientology called dead agent. I know when I say those things out loud, they sound crazy. And I guess I've developed a kind of desensitization to those kinds of terms, which means I've been doing this for a long time. But also, I'm aware that when I say those kinds of terms, I think dead agent, that's a term used in a group that calls itself a church. But you can look up DA or dead agent or dead agenting online to see that it is the role of people within this organization to discredit and defame and make life basically miserable for people who are sharing their experiences, their negative experiences within the group, or who start revealing what happens behind closed doors in order to provide education and prevention to the public. I know that it is par for the course for people in this field, as it has happened to me and will continue to be happening to me, and it is something that you need to just put aside in order to keep going with this work if you feel it's important to do. There are very few resources out there for people who have left groups like this, so it's motivated me to want to keep doing this work and focus on what is important. But this isn't so much about my experience of it, because my experience of harassment in these situations pales in comparison to others who have been so tremendously harassed and have had their lives turned upside down in every way by these efforts that I've only had glimpses of in my own life. And I would never pretend to compare the trouble they have caused me with the trouble they have caused others, especially people who have left who were high up in their ranks and who had access to information that only people who were, again, behind the scenes would know. But there is something also that I think people don't realize when they promote something like Black PR, and again, pardon the expression, or dead agent or dead agenting, which seems more grammatically correct. The reason that I want to talk about this is that there is what turns out to be the meeting of a short term goal by the organization of discrediting any source of critical information or true information, as many people see it about this organization. But There's also the long-term and I think quite unexpected 
unexpected to them consequence that may not be important to them at the time when they are unleashing their harassment or know that they have to in order to maintain their post within the group or to be seen as devoted members of the group. But the long-term consequences for this, for people to know, I think, and it's important for people to know who are being harassed by them or for people who love those who are being harassed or for people listening, and I'm sure you are, who are doing the harassing and who are collecting and keeping track of what I say, as I would expect that, because it's common for people in my field to be monitored in this way. That when people are harassed and defamed and gone after and attacked, it might immediately make the victim look bad, maybe under suspicion for a little while, and maybe make people in the general public or those in their life suddenly doubt them. But the long term impact is that it makes the harasser look very bad. And that is, I think, why groups like this are losing so many members and their words and attacks are starting to fall on deaf ears because after a while, the general public realizes what they are up to. And it just simply cannot be true statistically that anyone who has been upset by an organization like this or harmed by it or who want to warn the general public about it has something inherently wrong with them. It just can't be so. The logic starts to break down and that redirects people's attention off the people who are being defamed and back to the people who are doing the defaming, the actual source, the people who are doing the attacking, and people start to wonder what is wrong with those people instead and what is wrong with the group that's promoting this behavior and, in fact, urging it on. There's actually an idea in Judaism to pivot for a moment and... It may also exist in other religions that it's worse to destroy someone's reputation than it is to kill them. And even though it's clearly very bad within the Judeo-Christian religion and many other religions, and just in terms of being a human, to kill someone, and it's against the Ten Commandments, so it's on the, as we grew up saying, the top ten list, to know that something that is already one of the top ten crimes is considered to pale in comparison to the destruction of someone's reputation, is an incredibly powerful message. And the reason that it is said that way within the tradition I was raised in is that when you kill someone that is awful beyond awful and wrong and should never, ever be done, but when you wrongly and intentionally destroy someone's reputation just because you can, and just because you know sometimes people are swayed by what you say, then you're forcing a person to live with the destruction of their reputation. And it's like keeping them alive and torturing them seemingly endlessly and taking everything away from them through no fault of their own. And that is considered unconscionable. So I urge all of you listening to know that what is done by these groups is considered in some traditions to be worse than destroying people physically. But because people are wising up and negative attention is increasing towards the people who are doing the harassing, then they are destroying their own reputations. Or worse, 
that an organization is putting these people in a situation as being the attackers and then is setting them up as pawns ultimately to have their own reputations destroyed because those who do the harassing are the ones who will be seen as the bad ones in this story. But I wonder how much people would behave like this without the organization behind them guiding them to do this, making them feel it's justified, making them feel it's right or necessary, giving them extra points or higher statistics within the group for doing it and doing it well. So if you feel the need to harass me or others or destroy people who have suffered by being a part of such an organization or just talking about it or trying to get their lives back, just know that the more you behave that way, the worse it makes you look and the more it makes people wonder how you can do that. And the more it proves something diagnostic about the organization that is standing behind you and pushing against your back with a hard force so that you wind up in someone else's face shouting and berating them. That's a visual I think of when I think of these situations. If groups wanted to present themselves as truly ethical organizations worthy of membership and worthy of respect, well, they shoot themselves in the foot each and every time they act out like this. And each and every time it's sanctioned by the group itself. I was once working with a 12-year-old boy in my office who told me that he was being persecuted at school, that no one wanted to be his friend, and that the teachers and administrators had singled him out as a troublemaker and were constantly busting him for doing things that were not his fault, and his parents had rallied around him, wanting to speak to the school and wanting to find out what they had against their son. And I got permission from them to observe him at school on a few occasions. So I sat back for the first half hour and watched him and he looked over to see if I was watching. And at first I thought it was just to make sure that I would notice if he was being persecuted, as he said, and he wanted to make sure there would be a witness to it. But then as time went on during my observations and he would sometimes just eventually forget I was there, he started behaving in a way that was explaining why he was considered a bully and why he was constantly being called into the principal's office, and why he was being blamed for the things that went wrong. He would purposely bump into kids, even stick his leg out while he was sitting, and trip them as they walked by, and he would jump into kids' faces and clench his fists to just to kind of startle them. And he would put things in other people's backpacks, then tell on them as having stolen those things. He was working the whole system, but then came to me to talk about how he was being persecuted. But then he lost all his credibility. And as his parents would be expected to when you're good parents and you don't yet know what's really going on, they rallied behind him not knowing that he was actually at fault. And I remember there have been times where groups like Scientology have said that they are being persecuted, that they actually say that quite a bit. They cry religious persecution if someone is against them. And for some reason, it works. And then when they cry religious persecution, people back off for a while. And their intimidation kind of clever tactics also make people back off. But now only for a while. That facade breaks down. It eventually always does. 
So organizations like these will do what is predictable for them, and they will encourage their followers to do as they were told and protect the organization at all costs. And we in the general public will see it more and more for what it is, as is already starting to be the case. People cannot be fooled forever, and that is a wonderful thing. Talk to you next week. I'm excited to say that this podcast is now available on additional platforms. If you want to listen to Indoctrination, it's available for download on the NPR Radio Public app, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and more. Please support Indoctrination at patreon.com indoctrination. We now have a big library of content that you can access with any donation. And subscribers receive bonus interviews and other cool goodies. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Thank you for your support.